Okay. Unmuted now. Okay. Can everyone hear me? Can yes. Okay. Perfect. All right. So, um, all right. So why don't why don't we just tell you what happened? Okay. So may, maybe I'll just just do one. We have one figure that really has a lot of the results, the evaluation that worth that is worth noting. So, again, there's a process that determines a series of criteria whether the youth was eligible. There's this random assignment that occurs 40 and, and it wasn't a balance coin. So more, more youth were assigned to participate than not to participate to generate uh, enough, uh, enough cases to keep the, the service providers at capacity that they could handle. So 44 youth were assigned to uh, the, the traditional um, criminal prosecution, 99% to make it right. And we can already see just among those that were assigned to MIR, the arrest rate and the re-arrest rate within six months was 24%. Among those assigned to traditional prosecution, the re-arrest rate was 43%. And then within one year, it was 38% versus 56%. So we can see just for those that are assigned, regardless of whether they completed, they appeared to be doing better. When we look at the youth who were assigned, 19 were deemed unsuitable. 80 were deemed uh, actually enrolled in the program. And again, you can compare the arrest rates and you see that that there's a big difference between those that enrolled and those that didn't enroll with the arrest rates for the youth that were deemed unsuitable looking a lot like the arrest rates for the youth who were uh, funneled into traditional prosecution. And then among those who enrolled, we have those that completed the program. So of the 99, 52 followed through to the end and 26 didn't. And again, you can see very, very, very low re-arrest rates relative to the comparison group. So within six months, 11.5% were re-arrested as opposed to 43. Within 12 months, 19% were arrested as opposed to 57%. And those youth who didn't complete, their re-arrest rates look a lot like the, the youth who were uh, diverted. So uh, who weren't diverted. And so we really think that the, the pattern suggests that they're um, you know, really was kind of a transformative uh, effect. And it doesn't drive, you know, re-arrest rates to zero, but it uh, it looks like it it reduced re-arrest rates uh, considerably. So another way to look at this is just to compare um, uh, the, the, what this is something called the cumulative re-arrest hazard, but that's just fancy language for what's the likelihood that you were arrested within a given number of days. And so, we have this here along the the kind of the x axis here didn't didn't know you'd be doing algebra this evening but you know here's your x axis here's days from randomization into the program here's the probability of rearrest and you can see it's going all the way up to 0.8 on the scale so it's a pretty pretty high rearrest rate among the youth that are involved in this study the black line is how that increases with days from rearrest for the youth assigned to the uh, uh, control group that didn't participate in MIR. And the blue line is uh, for youth that participated in MIR. And you can see the big gap that opens up between the two. Um, another, and then this is actually to, to, you know, this is any arrest and here's for a new felony arrest. Uh, and you can, you can see the difference. And, and it is, it turns out that these disparities are statistically significant. Another way we can look at is by simply comparing the percent among the control group rearrested within six months versus the percent assigned to the treatment group. Uh, large gap opens up early on. 
it seems to persist all the way through 48 months uh, uh, post assignment. And then we also um, looked at the period one year to four years, so not including the first year afterwards. And we can see that there was a big intervention. We should also note that you know, we we kind of pushed and prodded these results to the extent we can. It's a relatively small sample, so it's hard to look at subgroup effects to look at, you know, differences by by the the charging offense or the race or ethnicity of of the kid or gender for that matter, because they were mostly male. Um, but one of the things we were able to do is, you know, we could pull out uh, sort of contempt of court or, or probation uh, uh, violations um, from, uh, you know, from consideration and just look at, at arrests for new offenses. And we basically find the same thing, right? So, and then there were a bunch of other, other different types of checks that we did um, that suggest that you actually just see a palpable difference in, uh, in rearrest. The other thing I should note is the data we have not only looks at, at arrests as juveniles, but there was uh, we were provided with information about um, adult arrests as well, and so you know if if the if the youth in question in the study turns eighteen during the study period, we can see additional adult arrests that are occurring within the city county of San Francisco. So this is inclusive of that. So um, so what's the punchline? So uh, assignment to the Make It Right program caused a large and permanent reduction in the likelihood of being arrested, about 18 percentage points. That's 32% uh, decline within one year and 26 percentage points or 30% within four years. Um, it, it, although this is a little bit of a technical issue, it, it turns out that the effects are way larger if we look at, at not only enrollment in MIR as opposed to being assigned to just kind of showing up at MIR, but you know, actually participating to some degree, it's about effects were 1.3 bigger. And for those that completed, they're, they're sort of double in size, right? So um, whatever that process is that keeps youth engaged in the, in the program, it appears to have a large causal effect on, on, uh, on their outcomes, which look good. Um, you know, this is, a, it's a small study, 144 uh, youth, um, and we think it's, you know, re really uh, a positive study. I, I think another thing to emphasize in other interventions where this has been done in the past in the United States, the, the interventions tended to be for, for youth that were arrested for less serious offenses. So it wasn't clear that the, the intervention was done in lieu of something and might have been done in lieu of nothing, right? So it could have been net widening. In this instance, all of the youth were charged with felonies, right? So they were involved in relatively serious crime and the alternative was uh you know was a uh, um, you know petition and 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 a traditional case processing um you know it would be wonderful if we could find other places that's one of the things that that the research team is trying to do is to find other jurisdictions where they might let us try to reproduce this um and then it would also be interesting to understand exactly what the channels are so why it works in some ways what we can just say is you know we saw kids that went this path or that path and then see what happened uh and and we don't you know we can speculate about what the what the mechanisms are and probably the you know community west and huckleberry folks probably know more about what the mechanisms are and why it works than than we do but in you know in, in with you know further research and perhaps larger demonstrations we might be able to you know disentangle what's the secret sauce and that that would be a, a goal for the future and then we also think that you know whatever could be done to increase pr uh, um, program completion rates 
is one one of the interesting, you know, we've had many conversations with providers um, for this program as well as others around the country. And, you know, they have imparted upon us and, you know, in many conversations that that a lot of times the youth they have, you know, the reasons for being unsuitable for not not completing, you know, don't necessarily reflect uh, an unwillingness that they could be, you know, tentatively housed, not not have, you know, stable um, homes or phone numbers or places where they can be reached and so on and so forth. And so there, there is this interesting question about how, how to, how when once youth are enrolled in the program, how would how people would increase the the completion rate? So that's Thank it. you. I, yeah. I, I want to uh, um, move on to uh, people have come questions for you or comments and thoughts about this presentation. First, among the commissioners. I have a bunch of questions, but <laughs> any any thoughts? I I always notice in our data, it's not a lot of kids that get for, referred to make it right. So mm -hmm. I would say, if this is a successful path, you know, what can we do to get more young people on that path? Number one, um, and number two, I heard uh, some concerns about. Okay, what happens after you go through this process and how do we make sure that it isn't just a one-time process but that the referrals that are made to agencies are actually followed up on and are part of determining whether this is successful or not. So um, I don't know if anybody has any thoughts about how well that works or what some of the um, challenges have been with that. And lastly, I'd say, um, you know, the idea of restorative justice permeates many systems. It's in the school system, in community agencies. It's a great, great concept. So I just don't want people to think this is the only restorative justice approach going on in, in San Francisco. Um, does anybody else on the commission have any thoughts about this? Or I, I'll, I'll say thank you. Uh, Professor Raphael, I've been involved in in this project because it's coming out of the, the policy lab where I work, um, so I know a lot about it. Um, one of the things that's tough, I think, is that we 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 think that this is so successful in part because these kids were facing really serious consequences if they weren't diverted, and there actually aren't that many kids being arrested in San Francisco on serious charges who are eligible. So trying to figure out how to expand the number of kids we can get in to the program and have it work in the same way because they're facing, you know, the serious charges is is tricky. And then that was tricky for the research team who had to wait a long time for the sample of kids to be big enough to even do the study, right? Because there just weren't that many kids being arrested on on felony charges. So I think it's a tension um, in terms of expanding. I know we have somebody from Huckleberry in the audience, and I don't know if uh, uh, any if we have any public testimony or people who've had experience with this program who want to make any comments about it. Thank you. Madam President. <laughs> okay. Hi, everybody. My name is Denise Coleman from Huckleberry Youth Programs. 
And we are a subcontractor to Community Works West, and so we act as the agreements monitor, uh, which means that we sit in the conference um, and we support the young person with completing whatever the plan was and the agreements that were made uh, in the conference. And so basically we case manage them with any other additional services that they may need during that um, process, but mainly it is to, to keep them on track with completing the agreements that were made in the conference. Thank you. I also know that the person who is gonna ultimately be responsible for this program, the DA, Casey Lee, was intending to be on the line and I was hoping she might make some comments. Um, so if we can take comments from people on the line and see if she is there and wants to make any comments about how she sees the future of this program. It's under the DA's office and she is our new juvenile DA. And um, so she is ultimately responsible for this program. And so making sure that the maximum number of kids get into it and making sure that the follow-up programming is uh, really followed through and you know gives young people the services that they need. I don't know if she's raised her hand or intends to make any comments, but I wanted to give her a chance to do that. She on the I, line. I, I don't see her name on the attendee list. Okay, thank you. So, um, thank you, Dr. Raphael. I don't know if you have any additional comments you'd like to make, Chief Miller, or anybody on the commission has any comments. Um, I hope that the reason we did this was because we want people to understand that this approach can really make a difference and we want to expand the ways we use this approach. Yeah, I think um, President Duncan, I think I would add a couple things. One is uh, it's adding on to what Commissioner Laco said, which is that a lot of the research does show that the strongest findings can be when it is for a serious case, right? Um, and I think that opens up a lot of important concepts. We often think about using things like restorative practices for low-level behavior. Uh, and, and these kinds of findings offer an alternative way of thinking about the power of it. And I think that that is so important. The other thing that I think is really unique and important about this is that the model has what people call kind of reverse Miranda, which is that everything that happens in that room stays in that room. Right, and so it does create a space in that conversation where the young person uh, talks a lot about the things happening in their life and their needs and the plan they come up with really stays in that space as well, right? Um, and so nobody, so neither the DA's office nor probation, none of us actually have the plan afterward. It's really something that Huckleberry is working on. Uh, and, and I just think it's an interesting and different way that the model is designed. It is fully designed to be a true alternative to the existing system. So I just, those are, those are the comments that I would add. Um, and then the last thing is, I think that the question about what happens after is a really good question. Uh, and what's so exciting to me about the long tail that California Policy Lab looked at, how long after a young person was involved, they still had significantly lower rearrests is really heartening, right? It shows that it, it sticks. Um, obviously for young people, I think we still need to make sure we're giving them support and attachment to things in community, but uh, it's just very exciting to see after 
so many years of sticking to a randomized controlled design that is very hard to do when you have real young people's cases in front of you. The thing that was disheartening about it, though, was there's a high re-arrest rate. I mean, for the, I mean, even for the people in the program, and particularly for the people who are, you know, comparable. I mean, it was like 57 percent re-arrest rate. So I am hoping, as a commission, we can figure out how to get the data about what the outcomes are, about re-arrest rates, and about you know what's successful and what isn't, so that we can have a lower re-arrest rate for all our young people. So you wanted to say something? Yeah. Hey, is it is it? Did we say that it wasn't a lot of young? Well, I'm, I, I think that there there are actually thousands of young people that that were referred to juvenile probation over this time period, but the criteria that was used for the study limited the number that were were eligible. So that that's part of what the you know why there's only 144. But I just wanted to note in the chat, I noticed that um, Sandra Santana uh, with Community Works asked is said she could speak to the program and that that um she just needs to be unmuted. No, but my question was, I didn't finish my question. My question was, talk about young people age 15 through 18. Are they represented by a parent in there? Do they have a uh, yeah, so How do we approach that? Uh, sure, sure. That situation? Um, the, it, it was the case indeed that, that their legal guardian, their parent or legal guardian, uh, you know, that were, were you know, I think had to actually consent to to participation in the program. Uh, I'm not, you know, perhaps uh, community community works could could tell us, you know, the extent to which that that becomes an issue, or or when when uh, when parents might might refuse. Yeah, because you see where I'm going with this. Because my concern would be, how do I let a young person go in there unrepresented and without a parent, even even though the parent had consented. But letting a young person be in there by itself with an adult at that time. So I would be kind of concerned about that. We, we're still yeah. talking about young people. We're still talking about kids here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would, I understand. Yeah. I fully, as a parent, I understand. I would, I would be too. My understanding is that a parent, in terms of the conference, that the, the young person was able to bring their supporter with them, which I, I would say typically would involve the parent or guardian. Denise, did you, did Denise want to say something? And supporters of our young people. And they're, they're uh, akin to case managers. They prep the young people for the conference. They have extensive and long conversations with them over probably a couple of months to prepare them to sit in front of people and to be held uh, and to talk about what frame and state of mind they were in that day when this offense may have been committed um, and, and to help repair the harm. Um, and at the same time, the person harmed is also in that circle. But the, the, the coordinators work really very closely, not only with the kid, but with their support system. And a lot of times that's a parent or a guardian um, or, or someone that they want in that circle to help represent them. So the, they're not 
an adversary, um, an adversary opponent to the young person. They are really trying to do what's in the kids best interest and to help them get through the conference in a way that is supportive, caring, restorative. And, and so they're real advocates for the young. And putting a baby in that situation where they're sitting there with an adult that happened to, you know, be the victim too, and I worry about the victim as well. Um, it, it's just concerning that they, if they're not represented or have a parent with them that's for their better good or somebody to advise them on how to, you know, or even any decision they make at that age is, you know, it travel it, it 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 carries on with them moving forward and you know does it traumatize them in the process is the victim being traumatized uh re-traumatized after the crime? so it is so lot it is so lot going on with that putting them in the history Okay, we have someone online who works in the program, um, Sandra Santana, who would like to provide clarification for these concerns. So, Sandra, you, you're, we'd like to hear from you. You have like three minutes to give your testimony. Are you there? Can we unmute Sandra? Yes. Thank you so, so much. I apologize for being so persistent in the chat, but I did want to speak to the concerns and the questions about the program very briefly, if I may. Um, so I hear what, what's being asked and there's definitely concern around what's happening in the conference with our young people, their family, um, as well as the person harmed. So part of our restorative process, obviously, is to never create or induce trauma or even incite secondary trauma, right? Um, so when we come to conference, so our coordinators work um, for weeks on end with our young people, with their support person that can be identified as a parent. Um, it can be identified as somebody in their life, a teacher, a counselor, um, someone that they feel comfortable bringing into the space that can kind of support them as we move through the conferencing process. Similarly, while our coordinator is working with the young person, they're also working in tandem with the person harmed. And so that person harmed is also getting support and scaffolding that they need so that they feel supported in conferencing as well. They're also allowed to identify a person that they identify as a support person for conferencing so that everyone in the space feels like they have someone to support them so that the conversation maintains this equal partiality that we like to have in conferencing. So the coordinator's role in terms of restorative circling is really to provide a, a caring, kind, um, trauma-informed space where everyone feels supported. They have a provided support person um, and all of our coordinators are really trained to handle um, restorative justice to handle any conflict and to de-escalate any conflict that may arise in conferencing. Um, as someone who's been in circles and conferencing with um, 
make it right for the past three years, I can confidently say that we haven't really experienced any kind of escalation or any kind of serious conflict. Um, everyone that's come into the space has been very respectful. And I think the coordinators um, in collaboration with CARC do an excellent job of maintaining equal partiality and maintaining that safe space. Thank you. So I don't know where you want to take this, but I'm we're way over time that we were allotting to this. So um, I think people we've made our points. Do you want to have the program committee address this further? Do, no, cool. Yeah, I mean, this will be not be the last time we talk yeah, about this, especially since we're moving in this direction, having more of this kind of program rather than you. I, I hear your concerns. I see the experiment on your face, but. Um, yeah, I have, a, I have a big concern. It appeared that the conference was very good, but how do we prevent problems? How, how do we prevent them from coming to YCD, YGC? Because it appears every time we have a meeting here, we always see 99 point something African American inside. So look at the conference kind of concentrate on inside issue. But how do we prevent that from coming? Was there any, any, I thought maybe they discussed that from the conference. Commissioner, are you saying how do we prevent the young people from being booked in the first place? In the first place. Sure. Sure. So obviously this is, so that I think that that's, you know, this, you bring up an important point, which is that there's lots of kinds of diversion, right? So there's police diversion out in the field. There's diverting young people from being booked. There, this is prosecutor diversion. So when the case comes to the prosecutor, that front end has already happened. It's already played out. A number of the young people in Make It Right actually were never detained. So San Francisco does a lot, the police um, and CARC do a lot of, and probation, we do cite out a lot of young people at the point of arrest already. And so the bulk of the young people who went through Make It Right actually were never booked in. It wasn't that level of offense. It was young people who could actually be cited out with a ticket on that day. And what it means for them is that they never see the inside of a courtroom. Um, it was when we started the program, we had hoped to put more young people in directly from custody. And that was really hard for a lot of reasons over the first few years. With these positive findings, um, the current DA has actually started moving some young people from custody in to make it right. But to your point, it, it kicks in because it's a prosecutor decision after that decision has already been made. And so that speaks to the need to make sure that we have the appropriate kind of diversion models at different decision points. And we're gonna, I think we'll talk more in June right. about different diversion models kind of across the spectrum in our system so we can give some more flavor to those those different options out there. But this is the DA's opportunity for diversion. Okay, I'm gonna move us on to the next agenda item knowing we will forever come back to this. Thank you, everybody. Yes, and thank you, Dr. Raphael. And is there any other public comment? So I am going to move us on to item seven on the agenda, which is the JPD monthly data report and point out that we have allotted 15 minutes for this and we already went over like 40, I don't know how, a long ways on the last item. So I wanna move us along on that.
Am I able to share screen? Can't do it yet. Do you want me to try it, Selena? That would be wonderful. Give me a moment, let's see. Okay. Perfect, thank you, Mike, and I You're welcome. will flag which slides I'm going to highlight. Good evening, commissioners, community members. I am Selena Cuevas from JPD presenting our monthly data report. Um, this month focuses on the month of January. Unlike prior reports that we have done where we've presented some slides on the most recent month, now all of them are on January to tell a clearer story and give us more time to QA our own data and make sure everything we're presenting is correct. Um, so, Mike, if you could take it to slide three, please, the juvenile hall snapshot. Perfect. Okay, so this is the snapshot that you all are used to seeing um, from Monday of this month, so, or of this week. So, the juvenile hall population by gender, 77% boys, 23% girls. By race and ethnicity, 77% black youth, 23% Latinx youth. I'm continuing to see over half of the population being 18 years old or older. Um, by county, all but two youth were from San Francisco. And by status, um, two young people are in JJC due to a commitment, two young people due to a secure track commitment, one was pending disposition, and two were pending adjudication. Also want to highlight, just like we did last month, that there are also two youth in San Francisco County Jail pending trial. One has been committed to juvenile hall and one has been committed to the secure track. Mike, if you could take it to slide eight, please, ADP by race ethnicity. And so here I want to highlight that we are continuing to see that our daily population on average is 100% young people of color. Um, but in January, specifically seeing higher percentages of young people who are black, in January, black youth accounted for over 80% of our average daily population. Mike, if you could take it to slide 17, please. Admissions by primary reason. Here, I wanna highlight that 74% of admissions in January were, for, were mandatory detentions, the largest category being for new law violations for 707B offenses. The remaining 26% were due to firearm possession. Or what? Were due to firearm possession. Firearm possession. Guns. Oh. Guns. That would have been easier, thanks. Um, okay, uh, Mike, if you could take it to slide 21, please. Referral. Um, here, I want to highlight that we are continuing to see higher numbers of referrals in the past couple of months to probation. Um, but unlike the last few months, we had very low numbers of referrals to CARC and Make It Right. 
Um, again, diversion is the topic of tonight, and I do want to say that in June, we will be doing an in-depth analysis of diversion, working with CARC, working with the DA's office to share data and figure out how to increase diversion. Mike, if you could take it to slide 25, please. Active caseload by unit. Perfect, thank you. So here I just wanna highlight that there's been a decrease in AB12 cases with the exiting of the first cohort at the end of the year. Other units remaining about the same or increasing in cases means that our active caseload overall has remained pretty stable. And then Mike, slide 41. And so here, I just wanna highlight um, future deep dives. For April, there is nothing currently scheduled. Um, and so definitely wanna open it up to you all commissioners on if you would like to invite an expert to come speak on a topic of interest. In May, there's a report out on the CBO JPD work groups. And in June is our diversion deep dive presentation. And that is, all the slides that I have to highlight, but I'm happy to take questions on any slides that I didn't go over. Let me ask if any of my commissioners here have questions or comments or concerns about the data that they have just heard or seen. Well, I'm concerned about the low referrals to CARC and to make it right. And that seems very consistent, but inconsistent with where we're trying to go, which is to have fewer and fewer kids, you know, in in the system. So I uh, appreciate getting the the data and the accurate data, but the, the, that certainly raises a concern. Um, I 100% agree, and that's concerning to us as well. And so what the deep dive is gonna focus on is figure out why more young people aren't being diverted. What are the current barriers, exclusionary criteria? How can we change those so that more young people can be diverted? And then we have 26% of non-mandatory admissions. So I think that, you know, calls for further exploration. But I wanna share with my fellow commissioners because I've, this is overwhelming, getting all this data and trying to figure out what to do with it. So I have asked for a special meeting with, um, and through, K, through our chief, um, with the data staff and have uh, asked our new commissioner, Joanna, how do you say your last name? Laco. Laco. Mm -hmm. Joanna Laco, I was going to say Laco, so Laco, um, who is an expert in data, we're saying, which is so exciting, um, and uh, to sit down and figure out how can we present this in a way that immediately tells the story that we need to hear every month, um, but isn't pages and pages that we have to go through, and then um, and then there are things that sort of have fallen off the 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 report and things that you know seem really important that we should start hearing more about so i have called a sort of ad hoc um meeting to do that and um i think because we have two commissioners going to it already if anybody else wanted to come who wasn't on a on the program committee um, that, that would be all right but I'm sitting here with two people on the program committee. So I, I'm hoping that we can come back to the commission 
with some good ideas about how to make the data even more accessible. While I want to say having this data is fabulous and you have a wonderful data group and this is like data that I don't think this department has ever seen before and most departments don't get this kind of data report. It's very important. And we're gonna to try to do better to make it more accessible and make sure that we're seeing data on all the things that we wanna see like how many referrals to CBOs and other things that I'd like to, and some more outcome data that um, wanna figure out how we can get into the mix. So does anybody in the audience have comments on the data? I'll just, I'll just say one thing. I think part of what we can talk about, what would be helpful will be to understand of eligible people what's happening um, because it's hard from just the numbers of referrals to understand if the share who are eligible is changing or it's just there weren't enough eligible kids coming in the door. And I think that will help tell the story. Definitely. Anybody, any public testimony of people here or people on the line who want to make comments about this data? Uh, there's some people. Uh no one has raised their hand, but in the uh, chat, it looks like Sandra, did you want to make a comment? Let's see. I think that may have been from made the, the make it right presentation earlier. Oh, she, she made the comment before. I think she said it again though, but, but it looks like she's not, she's no longer on the call. Okay. Any other, any other comments? Um, if not, we will go on to the next agenda item with the idea that we will continue improving this, the commission's use of this data and understanding of this data. And Thank you, commissioners. Thank you, Mike. Okay. Well, the next item on the agenda is reports to the commission. And I put in president's report. Now I'm looking for my report, I thought I would try to share with the people on the commission um, what I had done between commission meetings as your president. And I did, as you recall, um, present testimony at the closed juvenile hall uh, um, hearing. And I sent people the testimony. It was pretty benign stuff, but it did talk about the importance of the commission, the history of the commission, how we intend to play a role in uh, overseeing the closed juvenile hall report, but how we hope to do it in collaboration with other departments, the health department, the police department, um, DCYF, the human services agency. And um, then I went through uh, a couple of the things that are in the report that I said we were waiting to get their guidance on as they develop their own policies and priorities about intake, about reduction number of youth in detention, about the development of more mental health and behavioral health uh, services. So um, I did that. Then I met with Joanna. Like Laco. <laughs> Laco um, about you know her participation on the commission and um, asked her if she would be willing to chair the program committee. She agreed to do, and it's my prerogative as president to ask her. So I'm just 
thrilled she said yes and very excited about having her chair the program committee. I did meet with our previous president, who I'm sorry isn't here, um, about the retreat, asked him to find us a place for the retreat. Um, and uh, so as part of my report, I wanna sort of update you on the idea of a retreat and just see if we can just move forward. I don't know if we need a motion or we can just move forward. Um, did Joe find the place at the library? Because he said he was going to try. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so he, and we want to make sure it meets, it, it complies with what the city wants. His idea was to have the retreat at the Noe Valley Library, which has a very nice meeting space and is very open. And he, he was very excited about that as a possibility. So I, I have to presume that it is consistent because I asked him to do it because he knew all the rules we had to. So uh, that is his recommendation. Um, I went through with asking Nancy Rubin if she really was available. And um, I have her resume if you want to hear about it. She did agree to do it. And it is the juvenile probation department is able to do a sole source contract of some kind. And, not a contract, not a contract. But so we can pay her. Agree to pay her, assuming that that is okay with people. And if you want to hear more about her credentials, I was so thrilled when um, I told you about her before and everybody was very enthusiastic about her. And, um, you know, I just think she's a rock star as a facilitator. That's That's my knowledge of her she asked to be paid 175 an hour for up to 10 hours which uh i think is <clears throat> given what we've paid third sector by the hour is very reasonable um and and given that it would be uh, about 10 hours she proposes doing uh, uh, at least one, a, a couple of prep meetings. And if you've never been at a retreat facilitated by her, you are in for a treat um, because she knows how to get you from one place to another. And I was gonna ask James if he was willing to at least come to one of the planning meetings with the chief and myself and Nancy to uh, do the planning. You can think about it if you want to. You think about it <laughs> and um, would like to point out that uh, in for the last uh, 12 years, she's been a management consultant, executive coaching, inter interim executive director. She was the director of pretrial by diversion for a while, um, Edgewood uh, Center for Children. Um, she's been uh, um, advising and facilitating community agencies um, and she was trained in something called participatory decision making which is like how to help people make decisions that something called community works did so i don't know if you want to know more um, maybe i would entertain a motion motion to move forward with the retreat the idea would be to do it in late April or early May uh, to do it at the Noe Valley Library and to use Nancy Rubin as a facilitator and to have a small planning meeting with myself and the chief 
um, and focus on what the goals are for the year and how we can continue to improve our process to sort of monitor, perform our role as, as the oversight commission for the department. So um, I don't know, Jana, do we have to make a motion to do that or can we just hope no one objects? It's just possible you do have possible action i mean I... can we just do it i can say pending it does anybody object to moving forward this way i'd like to hear from from her okay sorry well, okay so i mean i'm wondering what you're asking the commission's approval for is is to hire this person is that what to agree to do the retreat in April or May to do it at the uh, Noe Valley Library and to hire Nancy Rubin as the facilitator. Yeah, I think it would probably be better if you voted. Would somebody move to that effect? To that. So, yeah, I'd love to move motion to, to retain. Do all of them. Does anybody want to second it? A second. Public comment. <laughs> uh, is there any public comment on that? And by the way, my idea of a retreat is that it's a retreat. We do it, but it's actually legally has to be open to the public. So you all have a stake in this. Um, and in this case, open to the public um, virtually as well as in person. Not that anybody wants to go to anybody else's retreat. They're usually painful, but um, uh, so yeah, you want to take the role, Pauline? I mean, Ms. De Silva. Jesus. I think I did actually. <laughs> um, does any, yes, I did. Does anybody no, want to comment on it? No public comment, so I'll take roll. President Yes, Broadkin. please. President Broadkin. Yes. Commissioner Laco. Aye. Commissioner Moses. Aye. And Commissioner Spingola. Motion passes. Okay, that's my report. Um, now we will go on. Madam President, I have a question. <clears throat> Do you know the specific day we're planning on having this event? Because we need to know ahead of time and how long will it take to be during the week or weekends? Weekday or weekend? Oh, no. You know, let's leave it up to the secretary to make sure that we're all available on Lowe's to pick a day. So we don't have a day. Okay. Yeah, so after we have our planning meeting, we'll get to you, you know, we'll figure out. No, actually, we should probably start earlier to figure out a date. Okay. Manager, so I will get available dates and send them out to you. Everybody. Great. So I'm looking at late April, early May. Okay. Um, and now um, I'd like to take the chief's report. Just wanted to make sure, Pauline, that you'll include the new commissioners on the dates. 
You know, I am having a terrible time here. I'll use the mic, but I'm going to sit closer to President Brodkin. My slides are super basic, so I don't really think we need, I need to be flipping through them, but maybe somebody should. Do we need to do that? Okay. Can you hear me better here? Is it better? Okay. Where's the other place? So, Michael, you could pull up the Chief's report, correct? Yeah, I'm just uh, the Orient. I'm not sure how to rotate it once it's. Like it's always um, yeah, orient orient just, yeah. orientation's wrong. Uh, it's weird. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, let's see. Okay, they're super basic slides. I feel like I can just do it verbally. And does that work? Yeah. Got a nod from Jana, so I'm going to go with that as my as my bible for how we can do this. So I only have a brief report tonight. As always, I'll start with the workforce updates. So we always report on, um, on departures, promotions, and new hires. I'll start with promotions. I want to acknowledge uh, Alex Souza, who was promoted to be uh, basically the senior secretary in charge of all of our clerks. That's not a position that we've had before. They've, there's been no one kind of in charge. Very, very happy for her in that role. I want to acknowledge our new finance director. We spoke about this last month, but Veronica Martinez, who has joined us coming over from adult probation uh, and who previously also worked at DCYF. She started on Monday. I want to acknowledge also we have a new utility worker specialist. That's part of our buildings and grounds crew. We also have two new on-call juvenile hall counselors. So those are folks who we call when we have vacancies in our required shifts. And then we have four folks that have moved into provisional juvenile hall counselor roles. So that means that they're in a provisional role for now. Um, we, as people have left, we do find ourselves short in our staffing. Um, and obviously we're always trying to balance how we're using overtime, not exhausting folks, making sure we have enough staff for the units that we have. And so they're in those provisional roles with us. It's kind of our, uh, I think the most appropriate way for us to be staffing at this time of transition. Um, and then we also have a uh, couple separations. So one of our stationary engineers left us again from buildings and grounds. I do want to note, it's a very hard time to keep people in that profession in city jobs. There's a lot of really great private sector jobs coming up for folks in buildings and grounds type situations. So you've seen a fair amount of that in the last few months. I also want to acknowledge uh, Glenn DeLeon, who had been in a finance manager capacity and then kind of a finance analyst capacity in the department uh, has moved on. And then, as you know, though she wasn't a, a member of our department, uh, Cheryl Taylor, who had been our acting finance director, also moved on uh, back to the PUC and we uh, are sad that she left and we're so glad that Veronica is here. Moving on to juvenile justice system transformation updates. Um, so super quickly, a quick update related to closed juvenile hall working group. So you already heard from Tracy about the different kinds of priorities the supervisor is looking at. I think we all have talked about the fact that a number of the recommendations in the report are about warrants. 
How do we make sure that we're using warrants appropriately? And the possibility of having what's called tiered warrants. So warrants that may result in detention, but may result in us not having to detain a young person. So we have our first uh, meeting of the court partners to discuss that. It's actually coming up at the end of the month to be looking at models from other jurisdictions that have already adopted that kind of tiered warrant role. So we'll be looking at places like Ventura and Santa Cruz and some other out-of-state places that already have models like that in place. So that's been set with the court and defense attorneys and the DA to have that preliminary conversation. Yeah, thank you. Um, and, and then moving on to DJJ realignment. So folks know that we submitted our plan to the state in December for how we in San Francisco uh, implement our own local plan for DJJ's closure. Um, our team, uh, myself and uh, Bobby and Emily and Maria had the opportunity today to meet with the head of the Office of Youth and Community Restoration. That's the new department at the state level that will be overseeing this work. Um, and I am going to just give a quick shout out to Emily Fox, who wrote the report, because we were given an A++ today in our meeting with the state. They had no feedback or changes requested and felt really positive about the work that the entire subcommittee did together uh, to get that plan developed. So I was really, really happy. Our next phase, of course, is using funding from the state to create new programs and services to meet some of the gaps that have come up in that discussion, including talking about having more credible messenger programming for the young people in the hall and in community and having more uh, kind of holistic support for families including having uh, funding that we can give directly to families for things they need. So we're now talking as a subcommittee about what kind of programming we'll be developing. All of that money went from probation to DCYF. It will go out in the form of community grants to bring those new programs online. So yesterday was our first meeting of our subcommittee to start fleshing out what that what uh, information we'll be putting into that request for proposals. We'll be coming together again one more time next month to continue the conversation. And then we're going to work on getting out that RFP and getting those funds into community and those services online for our young people. Um, uh, did you want me to stop? <laughs> sure. I said I was wondering what a credible messenger is, and I feel like we're having an onslaught of people who are allies and managers and this and that. And, you know, every time I turn around, there's the creation of another uh, sort of friend of a young right. person. And so I was wondering what that was. So it's a great question, and obviously it's something that's still being discussed in that setting. But what I will say is that when we say credible messenger in this context, we're talking about kind of credible messenger life coach models, but specifically that what came up as a gap when our subcommittee did our work last fall was making sure that we were able to always connect our folks with someone who has lived experience in the system, someone who has gone through the system and can be there with that perspective for young people um, as, as a person in their circle of support. And so this, is, this includes both young people in custody as well as young people in community. Um, but that's that's the way that it's being used in that context. Um, the next thing I wanted to super quickly touch on is electronic monitoring. I was gonna have Maria say 
one sentence about it because she's more uh, better able to speak to this than me, but we have an exciting resource for us to kind of look at how we're using electronic monitoring. It's a little more awkward to be in person, but I am happy to see all of you. So just quickly, as you may remember last year, UC Berkeley did an evaluation of, of out of home placement and that resulted in our foster care pilot program with alternative family services. So this year we're working with another UC Berkeley student to do an evaluation of electronic monitoring, um, which is of interest in both the juvenile and the criminal justice systems, particularly in nationally, I would say, and particularly in San Francisco. Um, and I'm really excited. She is doing both a quantitative analysis where she's looking at all of our data and looking at outcomes, as well as having uh, conversations with justice system stakeholders and community-based stakeholders and young people who have experienced electronic monitoring. Um, so you will be getting that presentation later this year, maybe in May, schedule it. Okay, thank you. Great, just wanted to check. Um, and this is really exciting because as Maria said, the use of electronic monitoring has come under a lot of questions and criticism, whether it's effective, whether it hinders people from meaningfully participating in all important parts of their lives, what are the outcomes and limitations? So we're really excited to be able to bring that kind of work here. Um, and then finally, I wanted to talk for a minute on, on this slide about Log Cabin Ranch. So um, it's a, something that I've been able to have a conversation with the mayor about. And what she's asked of me is to put together kind of a list of the different options of the ways we can use the ranch and the ranch property um, for consideration so we can make some decisions as a city. So obviously at program committee, we previously talked about a lot of different options for the ranch property, um, which I'm gonna lean over and say to Commissioner Laco because she's new here that it's at, we, our ranch has been offline for, for almost four years at this point, but we still have the property. So thank you for leaning. Um, so, uh, so as folks know, we talked about it at program committee and we heard a lot of ideas from the attendees at the meeting. The California Conservation Corps has also reached out with a proposal to take over that property to do programming for young people and young adults around fire safety and training. Um, I've had what I think will probably be my first of several meetings with the Rec and Park Department just starting last week around whether there are any collective ideas about that they have and suggestions for the property. Be talking to some other city departments as well. And we've also had conversations with real estate um, to better understand what, what options we have with the property, not just the costs of bringing the, the buildings back online, the water back online. We've obviously gotten some of those estimates from the Public Utilities Commission, but also whether there's a possibility to use some of that space because it's 614 acres, <laughs> whether some of it could be used in an income capacity to support uh, having programming on the rest of the space. So we'll come back to you in the future. I'm happy to also talk to any commissioners who wanna dig in more about ideas about the ranch, um, but we're trying to put together kind of a holistic set of ideas so that we can make some decisions and not have it sitting dormant like it is um, just with security there. I also should note um, related to that, that we actually found out last week, and this is the first time this has happened that we had a break in there. So there wasn't significant damage done. There wasn't significant things taken. 
but it was the first time that we've seen that happen. And this is exactly why we want to make sure we're using the ranch and that there's people down there and programming and that it's not sitting dormant. Um, and kind of exposed that way. So I just wanted to bring it so, up. Can I interrupt you for a minute and see if anybody on the commission wants to say anything about the ranch? Yeah, that's my question. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so our buildings and grounds crew is doing some ongoing maintenance at the ranch at all times. They are keeping up with things like the fire inspections and building inspections in San Mateo County, because that's where it's located. So they're doing a fair amount of ongoing work that way, but it's not being used, right? So they're doing kind of the minimal work around the space. Um, they go down there and they clear it out kind of vegetation wise and things like that, but nothing intensive and most notably, um, and uh, I think folks have heard me say this before, but the water systems are offline there. So that's not something that they're able to do. That would be a significant public utilities commission piece of work, but they maintain the parts that they can kind of do. And we do have security there, which you all know, because it's in the budget every year. But even with security, we managed to have an incident like this. It's a very remote location, right no, off the main road. Yeah. <laughs> I just had that chief because, you know, as it sits dormant and you don't maintain it, then it gets to a point where it starts deteriorating and then there's no, there's no bringing it back. Right. You know, because, you know, decision soon, yeah. then it just starts. So, like in and what we don't want to get it to is the other part of the property, yeah. which is Hidden Valley yeah. Ranch on the same site that yeah. is 20 years dormant and looks like you know, Jurassic Park yeah, at this exactly. point. Yes. When you said security there, does that mean 24 hours, seven days a week, or minimum? It does. It means that there's one security person there patrolling the entire area. Um, and so even with that, we were able, there was one person who was able to break into one of the buildings. It's multiple buildings on a large campus. No, sec no security camera or anything? No, no, it wasn't. It's not like that from that time. Yeah. So, so I asked um, our chief to address the ranch because I know there's great interest in it and want to sort of move along with planning and just point out that yes, the Conservation Corps presented something to the program committee for a very specific program. I like to think they left with the idea that they could be do some of what they wanted to do, but be much more responsive to the scope of, of um, ideas that came out of that committee because they have a lot of state money <laughs> to fix it up. So if we can, you know, capitalize on their money, but actually do what we feel needs to be done at the ranch, that that would be one possible good solution. Because what's held us up is the money. Okay, moving on. Sure. So last, my last slide uh, is on budget. So I wanted to give a quick budget update. When we were here last, you all voted on the budget. It was submitted um, by the deadline in February. Obviously, the mayor will issue her version of the budget June 1st, and then we will go through the period where departments are going before the Board of Supervisors. Uh, juvenile probation will be going in front of the board on June 17th and June 22nd. So that will be the day that we're there on our budget. 
Um, I also wanted to speak for a minute because I think it's important and it's not historically been part of the budget conversation here about our capital budget. So when we're here talking about our budget and the budget that the commission historically has approved, it hasn't involved large capital expenses. It's had minor expenses around keeping our buildings going, but anything significant is actually handled through an entirely separate budget process in the city called the capital planning budget. So in the interest of transparency and keeping us all understanding what we talk about, I wanna make sure that I touched on it here. So that process is for basically any capital project exceeding $100,000. Um, and the way it works is that departments go before the capital planning commission and we make capital planning committee and we make our presentations about what we need on our facilities. And then they decide what goes forward into that budget and what doesn't. Um, the committee is chaired by the city administrator and includes the president of the board of supervisors and various department heads. I bring that up for two reasons. One is I want to make sure you know that we do have some currently approved capital projects in the current budget. Um, they are very, very sexy things like our boiler replacement um, and facility maintenance. Uh, and going into next year, there's some additional things that'll be in the budget. Um, again, there are things like um, fixing an elevator, uh, land erosion. Anybody who's been up to YGC recently has seen that part of one of the hillsides next to our parking lot has collapsed down into the parking lot. Um, doing work around our air exchange and exhaust system, replacing broken windows, things like that. So I wanted to make sure that that was here on your plates and you were aware of it. But I also wanted to touch on the most important thing that we have asked to have included in this coming year's capital planning budget. And that is a placeholder ask of $500,000. So the city will be able to hire an architect or design consultant to create a conceptual design for the replacement of juvenile hall. So it's not tied to a location and it doesn't identify a specific architect or consultant. We really wanted to make sure that as that closed juvenile hall process goes forward, that we didn't find ourselves as a city in a situation where there had been nothing in the budget to actually start the next phase of that work. So we have put it in as a placeholder at this time and I wanted to make sure that you all were aware of it. Thank you, that's very informative. It doesn't seem like a lot of money. To, but, Just phase one. But it's Just something, it's one. step one. Do, yeah. do, um, do my fellow commissioners have comments or questions about any aspect of this? I think that architect is, or whatever it is, design person is really important. Um, the other report back to the commission was on the pro program committee. Um, and I have to tell you, my notes on the report for program committee are on my computer, and I, I cannot, I, I cannot to my computer. So um, I don't know. We had a short meeting. We had two up, updates on two things, and do it, either of my fellow committee members want to <laughs> make a report on what what was said? I have to tell you, I'm having amnesia about it right this minute, and I'm just relying on my computer, which I'm not, but since we have such a wonderful chief. Um, so, so the bulk of the last program committee meeting was focused on updates. Uh, if my recollection serves me, and I'm looking for Commissioner Spengel <laughs> in case I'm wrong, 
Um, but we talked about an update on our AB 12 youth. So our extended foster care youth who graduated out of the system. I'm seeing Molly is waving her hand because she probably has the full list. We will have public testimony <laughs> on this. And we also talked about, we gave an update on our placement and programs related to placement, um, including AFS and things like that, right? So those are the big buckets that, that we focused on in the conversation. So it wasn't about new discussion, it was just updates on the work. So do you want to comment? So, do we have public comment? I think we had somebody in the public who wanted to comment on program committee report. Thank God. Hi there. I'm budget and data analyst for GJPA. It's nice to see you. Can you, you talk all. loud? Sure. I'll talk loud. Um, I just wanted to say another thing that was that came up at the meeting was about the warrants, which was actually fabulous news that the number is now that there are 25 outstanding warrants. And that number was. Oh, I don't know where it was last year, but it was a lot higher. <laughs> it was like in the 50s. I think when I last heard another number, so that was great news. And then they talked about the AB 12 youth who emancipated January 1, and there were 43 out of JPD, which is the enormous number because of the delay during the um, epidemic. And um, all were housed or receiving a, a stipend and were in a, a living, their, their, their supervised independent living funds were continued to enable them to stay in their housing. And I think there was one challenging case that, that they were struggling to house. Um, so that was also exciting news. Thank you. Thank you. Do you want to make any comments about the AB 12? So I just want to um, tell you that Molly Brown has been an incredible volunteer to both this commission and the department and the Juvenile Justice Providers Association and has particularly been absolutely rabid about, you know, following the, the, pro, the issues related to a, the, it kids on AB 12, the young people, they're not kids, on AB 12 whose, you know, whose benefits have been running out. And so I just really want to thank Molly for doing that. It's, it's a major contribution. Um, so it, if nobody else has public testimony on the, any of these reports, we will move on to the next item. So I will ask my fellow commissioners, do you have ideas about future agenda items you want to make sure get on the agenda or any announcements you would like to make? Well, I know we have um, the vice president position open. I was wondering if we can put it on the agenda next commission meeting. Vice President, I'm sorry, I'm just having so much trouble understanding people. Um, okay, so here's what our former president told me that he heard from the mayor's office. You don't have to have a vice president. Um, and what his recommendation, I wish he were here, was that we hold off on the vice president until we have a full commission. And that in the case when I can't um, chair the meeting, that it defers to the head of the program committee, that that has been the usual cycle, uh, usual way that it has been handled. And since we're gonna get two new commissioners. Right. makes sense. It makes sense to sort of hold off for a 
couple of months, and apparently that's fine with the mayor's office, and it's fine with whatever attorneys are involved. So I meant to tell you that in my report. Thank it, you, Brian. It makes sense. So, and it, so what I'm hoping we do at our retreat is really figure out, you know, what future agenda items we want to have. And I do want to, I'm very excited about the June meeting where the staff is going to talk about diversion. And I'm hoping in May that part of that report about the meetings between the CBOs and um, JPD can also include whatever data we have. Um, and I'm looking at Maria. Um, about referrals and how that whole system of trying to track referrals is going. So I would like to hear about that at, for, for the May meeting that makes sense. Okay, any public testimony on things you would like to see on future agendas? Don't hear any. And so I am going to um, invite the public to leave because we are going to go into closed session. Um, to Do I have a motion to invoke the privilege of going into closed session? For the pending litigation, closed session. Yeah, to discuss pending litigation. For the clarification, yes, I'd like to make a motion and we're going to the closed session. Okay, a second. Second. Um, want to take the roll? Pub public comment first on that vote. <laughs> this is going to kill me. Why don't you get a sign? It says, public comment, Margaret. <laughs> um, you want to, any, any public comment? You want to take the roll? President Brodkin. President Brodkin. President yes. Brodkin. Yes. Commissioner Laco? Yes. Commissioner Moses? Yes. Commissioner Spingola? Yes. Motion passes. We're going into closed session. Okay. So, do we do that in this room? So I think we're now in open session. We do a roll call. President Brodkin. Here. Commissioner Laco. Here. Commissioner Moses. There. Commissioner Spingola. Yes. So we have to vote whether to, uh, to elect whether to disclose any or all discussion um, from the uh, closed session. Is this right? Um, so I 
Great. I was going to call for one. Does anybody want to make a motion to uh, whether we disclose or not um, any of the information? I'd like to make a motion. We don't disclose? That we don't disclose. Okay, second? Second. Okay, take the roll. <laughs> Just get a sign. <laughs> oh, no, put it on your mask. Public comment, <laughs> Margaret. <laughs> Any public comment? No public comment. Now you can take the roll. President Brodkin? Uh, yes. Commissioner Laco? Yes. Commissioner Moses? Hey, yes. Commissioner Spingola? Motion passes. Oh, team. So the meeting is adjourned. It is now. What? No, you don't. That's one thing I learned from Joe. He never voted on adjournment. And it is now 738. Yay, team. You are the head of the line.